0: They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined, as always, by my fabulous co-hosts, uh, Chris Askell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys?
1: Oh, man, I, I'm doing great. And uh, and luckily, um, I, I come to you without a story of shitting in my pants, which I'll tell you about shortly here. How are you, Zach?
2: I'll just uh, lo- enjoying a lovely, lovely, cloudy Sunday
0: day. it's nice and sunny here in ireland which i don't get to say very often so that's always nice
1: yeah yeah you know we over the past few weeks we've we've had a theme for every week and it's been covid and it's been uh a few different things now but so i've got i've got a very john waters theme for you all today um uh, are you okay if i just jump in and tell the story it's pretty wild absolutely okay so in in spirit of john waters my stomach just I don't know. I know, Adam, I know you have a lot of curry kind of in the UK, and Europe, uh, in, in Ireland. Um, Zach, I don't know if, what the equivalent with this would be. Maybe, maybe a night of too many spicy wings. But do you all know a feeling when it's just like, oh, you got to go now. Like, mm. like the tummy just, it just hits and it's like, no, it's now. It's not like 10 <laughs> minutes from now, it's right now. And we're, I was dropping my wife off. We're, we're, we're traveling this weekend because my wife's getting her, her, her tattoo. It's actually turned out really well so the story ends well. Um, didn't want to go into the tattoo parlor to, to take care of business because it's a small space and it's just embarrassing. She's about to spend four hours with this guy. And I, I had no idea about the unholy hell I was about to unleash. So in the little kind of shopping center, they had a barbecue place, which I was like, sweet, guaranteed to have a bathroom and a convenience store, which again, pretty high chance. Because of COVID, no bathroom in the barbecue place. Convenience store is out of order. I was like, well, this is bad. So where we were in Dallas, there was a road called Beltline that has, well, as of 2005, so this might have changed. Back when we used to live in Dallas, it had the most restaurants per capita of anywhere in the U.S., which I don't even know if that's a good or bad thing. That's a separate discussion. <laughs> but they have a lot of <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, a lot, lot, lot of bathrooms in, for the sake of this story, right? Problem was it was about a three to four minute drive from where we were. But I don't know the specific area of Dallas where we were. So I was like, I'm going to do it. I got to go. <laughs> Get in the car. It's 40 miles an hour. Is the speed limit? I don't know exactly how much I was doing, but it wasn't 40. <laughs> getting the Beltline as fast as I could. I'm, I'm, this is, it's not a visual podcast. It's not a, it's not a um, YouTube podcast. So I'll try to paint this picture, you know, descripting, describing it the best I can. So I'm driving. It's getting so bad that I'm actually like, my feet are on the floor and I'm lifting up my uh, whole body off the seat just to try to control one extra second of not exploding. I, I get to this red light in a major intersection, unfortunately, so I can't book it through the red light. Across the street is this poor innocent Thai restaurant <laughs> that has no idea what's about to hit it.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, I, and I lock eyes like my first love. And this restaurant's called Thai Box. I don't know, somehow that felt appropriate. So me and Thai Box are locking eyes. Light turns green. I fly in. Um, I, I make eye contact with the lady behind the counter, and I say, can I use that bathroom? That's it. She said, sure. In there. Ten minutes later, I sheepishly come out. The story ends well. Um, ten minutes later, and, and lots, of, lots of uncomfortable noises later, I walk out of this little restaurant. Um, order a Thai tea. <laughs> And the shrimp rolls out of guild, <laughs> <laughs> and and go about my day. Uh, but I'm a 38 year old man, and uh, that was, I was, I, I was having those thoughts of like, you know what? This is just one of those moments where I'm just gonna tell the story of shading my pants because. Like I can't control it anymore. Every muscle in my body was like, right now, right now. And I was <laughs> I was like, no, it can't be like, look, it's right there. There's the tie box. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's not a John Waters story, I don't know what is.
0: Oh, brilliant. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by uh, box. What, Whatever whatever Chris says to causes <laughs> bells to nearly explode.
1: <laughs> if you're in the beltline area in Dallas, go to go to Tie Box. The the Thai T was excellent
0: good guys and friend, friends of the podcast tie box who let Chris take a dump in their toilet.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the point. Um,
0: well, look, that's that's kind of the perfect introduction for talking about a John Waters film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, the first film that we're going to talk about this week um, is called Multiple Maniacs uh, from 1970. Um, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm going to read the IMDb description. We were having a laugh about this before we started recording. I'm going to read the IMDb description, which is Three determined women, Divine, Cookie, and Mink Stole, set out to solve the Sharon Tate murders. That is not what this film is about in any way, shape, or form. Sharon Tate is like a throwaway comment at one point, maybe, maybe, maybe two, if I remember correctly. Yeah, this film is not about this at all. Um,
2: now, if there's a sequel that involves that, I would watch it.
0: Oh yeah, (laughs) that sounds like a, that sounds like a great film. That sounds really, that sounds really fun. Um, Not that this wasn't kind of fun in its own way. Um, For for those who haven't seen Multiple Maniacs, it's essentially about this group of like, I don't know, like, like carnies or whatever way you want to sort of describe them. Um, But they're basically a group of like performers performers who do like really degrading performances and they get people in on free shows and then end up like robbing them. that's that's how the film starts anyway but we we mainly follow the character of divine um who is like this sort of legendary um what's what's the word i'm supposed to use? what's the political correct word well uh, are you talking about are
1: you trying to find like transgender
0: yeah but i don't know if lady divine was transgender though yeah,
2: well uh, it, it what's, john what's, waters drag, talked about drag, yeah yeah drag
0: that's that was the right word sorry yeah, yeah drag it's... drag performance artist yeah
2: well, it's complicated because John, I, I was reading an interview where John Waters talked about Divine as a person was male, but in film he called Divine her. Yeah. So it's, it's I don't have, and there's no real good explanation on that, that's just the way Waters explained it when he was going through like the pronouns and stuff.
0: Yeah, well, the the character is called Lady Divine, mm-hmm. and obviously Cookie refers to her as her mother, so... We assume the character of Divine in this film is a is is a female, um. But the act, the sort of actor and performer, Divine was a was a drag performer basically, um. And it's essentially an odyssey of Divine, um, going through different, just having different events just happen to her, and then just seeing how insanely she reacts to those said events, um. This this film has so many freaking talking points about it, um. It's yeah, who who wants to take the first crack at this one? Because with this film, it's just it's so much happens.
2: Well, the, looking at the letterbox, me and Chris gave it four, and Adam gave it two and a half. So yeah, I feel like Adam should start here.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. Like, and now looking back on it, I think my two and a half is probably a bit harsh. I think it's probably more of like a three, three and a half. I didn't, I didn't like it. You know, it's i said this in my review um like i don't care how low budget your film is i don't care if you're not using professional actors you know some of my favorite films from like the neorealist era in italian filmmaking had no budget and they had all non-professional actors all i care about is if you're you have a good plot or if your plot is nonsense at least try and be saying something at least you know try and have a message and i feel like and I could be completely off base because I'm I'm a complete John Waters noob. This is my first John Waters film. I I knew very little. Well, I knew very pretty much nothing about his filmmaking style other than the fact that he liked to shock people. And I was hoping that sh- that the shocking would maybe have a point. We're we're gonna I assume we're gonna talk about the Rosary job scene, <laughs> and that was one that sort of stuck out to me the most because obviously the scene is just like completely batshit crazy. And I, and it is exactly as it sounds when I say rosary job. It's exactly as it sounds. But, you know, during that scene, which, you know, it's filmed pretty well. And it has like this cool intercut between like the stages of the cross and stuff like that. What's he trying to say with that? You know, is he trying to say, oh, F you to the church? But then I'm just like, what's the point? You know, I, I just, that that's that's the kind of feeling I got out of this film where, you know, it was entertaining. I was entertained for the, what, the 80, 90 minutes that it runs from. It's, if anything, it's, it is, inter- it's an entertaining film. But at the end of it, I just, I just came out of it saying, you know, what was, what was the point?
2: I so, guess, oh, I'll let you start, Chris. You probably have better thoughts than I do. <laughs> oh, gosh. No, 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 Uh
1: Just to that last point uh, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, I, so to sum it up, and, and Zach, I actually, I really want to hear what you have to say, but to sum it up, I, this is the kind of film that i think 15 year old chris would have loved to make like i the, the what i what i loved about this movie is like it is pretty immature uh and and sort of you know offensive <clears throat> but it's all done i think with like i can just imagine these group of friends sitting around being like wouldn't it be funny if we did this wouldn't it be funny if we did this and just played against what was Considered sacred and holy at that time, right? And I, I don't know. There, there, there is this quote from John Waters that stuck out to me. He did a, a really cool interview um, in 2016 when this, when this was re-released, and he said, you know, I. Th- this is not meant to be. I want to be really clear. This is not meant to be like a critique on America or something. He's like, I love America. He's like, I, you know, they wanted to get this film banned, and the film went to the the ratings board. To ban it. And the comment that I got back was, my, my senses were assaulted for 90 minutes, but nothing in the movie was illegal. So it can't be banned. Like, you know. And so he's like, and and I, and in that moment I realized I love America. I love this country. So I think in his own quirky John Waters way, this was nothing more than just a film that was like they did some drugs. And they just made each other laugh. And then they were, they happened to be, you know, talented filmmakers. Like Some of the choices in here are ludicrous. Like there's so much voiceover. So much voiceover. And it's not even interesting voiceover, right? It's just like, like, when Lady Divine is telling her story, it'll go on for like 20 minutes over kind of some of the action or like, it's some of the choices they made are so awful, but, Somehow, it it really works for me on that level of just like it, it's a it, they're just dreaming uh, of these offensive things that they could do. Once somebody in our Discord said it was made back when you could still be offensive, and and I think that was kind of that kind of sums up you know my my feelings on it pretty well.
2: Um, and then there's a lot more to talk about. But Zach, what about you? Well, if I had to. Kind of give it a selling point. I, I would say that Multiple Maniacs is the greatest home video ever made, like home movie ever made. It has the the same feelings you'd get, you know, the extreme close-ups, you know, the, the, the almost amateur feel. But I think what separates John Waters and why it, you know, it it's it's got this I, I don't how do I want to put it this charm to it. And I know charm is kind of a blanket statement, but to kind of go more into that, I think when we talk about like, what's the purpose of the violence and stuff like that. What does it mean within the movie? I don't think Waters himself really cares what it means within the context of the movie, just the context of the reaction. And where this came out in very early 1970, this was right at the end of the count the, a lot of the counterculture stuff. So he's taken this almost extreme perversion and w- almost the extreme of what free love would be and showing like, how that's um, taken advantage of and I think that's why Sharon Tate's brought up like twice in the movie because you can cite that as kind of the end of the 1960s and the end of the counterculture era and this film almost comes off as a counter counterculture thing um, in a sense at least that's kind of how I take away from it when I watch it um, not necessarily a commentary on anything in particular just the, you know the reaction people would give to events like this the what they see on screen you know the joke of it it really only has to be funny to them because everyone else is going to be either offended by it or grossed out by it or something so the idea of tricking a pastor so you can go uh film a sex scene in a, a lesbian sex scene in a church is just a funny joke to them right. and the reaction that comes from it not necessarily it has any Basis on the plot, or have any deeper meaning within that actual story.
0: And see, that's kind of like my problem with it, though. And I just want to sort of put this out there: I'm not like a big Christian or anything, and I'm I'm really paid off about what happened. Like I'm an atheist, so I don't I don't have a ball in this court. Um, I just want to put that out here first. But like to me, like from what you guys are describing, and from what I sort of noticed, it kind of plays off like like a bunch of kids pulling a prank. And you kind of ask them, you know, why was that funny? And they're like, oh, you know, it was just a prank, bro. That kind of way. You know, it's not really funny if you look at it. It's funny to them because they're the ones doing it. But and I'm not saying the film isn't funny because it has some of, the, some of the, the wildest, crazy, funny dialogue in a film that I've seen in a long time. The film did have me laughing at some of its dialogue. But just the overall sort of message of the film just kind of comes across like basically John Waters kind of saying, oh, it's just a prank, bro. And I think it comes off, you
2: know, Waters' sense of humor is always going to be either you, you like it or you don't, and there's no way to ever convince someone to. But when I when I look at John Waters' films, he's childish, not in the sense of intellect. I think he's a very intelligent person. I think he's very thoughtful. But he kind of sees the world in a very childish way, you know, things in, in almost extremes and almost at face value. And, you know, basically... Uh, almost a naivete sort of way. Um, Not necessarily in a bad way either. Like I said, I don't find him unintelligent. I think that's just how he still sees the world. And that's really, you know, it's almost like if a child were given, having the ability to make a movie with this subject matter, this is how it would come out. And I think that's just how he is. And, you know, that's still prevalent in even his more polished work. That's just his sense of humor, I guess. Yeah, he's he's very...
1: um uh i i hate dogmatic maybe about sort of presenting himself as innocent right like like the his innocence is very like in in any interview he's very stubborn about defending like the innocence of his work, and I think he even in his personality he he always goes back around to like like the end result of watching his movies i think is way more shocking than John waters himself as a person or as an interviewer. Like, he's aware of what's happening, he's aware of the joke, but he stubbornly defends the the purpose of the film as being this kind of fun, playful, innocent thing. Um, but Um So it's confusing when you watch the movie because you're like, there's a woman who's sleeping inside church uh, uh, stalls and churches and then g- having sex with strangers by using the rosary and reciting the Twelve Stations of the Cross. <laughs> and this is her... And, and she's so excited to meet this celebrity who's a killer, um, Lady Divine. And that's where the line comes in. I'm so excited. I've never given a rosary job to a celebrity. <laughs> um, and, 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 just, and it's, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Just sorry. Laughing. Yeah. And I'll say, and, and, and the, the, the perfect way to kind of sum this up is John Waters filmed the, the first viewing of this movie in a church. <laughs> like,
2: that's like he awesome. knows what he's doing. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think if you take any other director and especially when you think about like all the most disturbing films ever made, you you have this bleak, this really bleak tone and this uh, really heavy atmosphere for a movie that deals with sexual assault and very bestiality in some ways, I guess, um, and multiple other things. It's very light. I mean, it, when you really look at the tone that he goes for throughout the whole thing, at no point does any of this stuff come off as heavy. Even when they're like brutally murdering people at the beginning of the movie, it never feels heavy. It never feels like disturbing. And well, I, I guess it does feel disturbing, but not in a way that just brings you down. It's almost like I'm not going to say uplifting, but it's like it's almost like that contradictions there with water is kind of how Chris was talking about. <laughs>
0: I think the way it was filmed as well—it's um, like it's like a John Cassavetes film on meth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God,
1: it's so true. I I caught the Cassavetes thing as well.
0: Yeah, just uh, you know the the grainy film and t- it's it reminds me a lot of like Faces. Um, you know the way mm. it's filmed it reminds me a ton of Faces, which obviously we watched sort of early in the film club days. Uh, it reminded me a a lot of that. But you, you you kind of brought it up there, Zach, and I suppose we have to talk about it the the lobster what's with what's with the 15 foot lobster you know coke is a hell of a drug <laughs> uh yeah there's a there's a scene in this film that features a a 15 foot lobster that comes out of nowhere and i i don't want to say it doesn't have relevance on the plot cuz it technically kind of does it sets divine off in her final rampage um but yeah so the lobster no no, no metaphors for the lobster, it's just a lobster. That's I feel like,
2: you know, like I said, I think Waters an intelligent guy, but I, thought, I think he just thought that was funny. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I can't imagine he has some deep meaning behind it. He's just like, you know, it would be kind of funny. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I
1: was trying to find the quote really quick, but, but in the same interview where he was talking about how much he loves America, they brought, obviously brought up the lobster scene. And he said, you know, I'm never going to say that rape is funny, but... <laughs> When you're being raped by a lobster, it's kind of funny. <laughs> and then the question is, um, you know, there's rumors of a lot of cocaine on the set. And basically, he's like, those rumors are true.
2: <laughs> oh, man, I'm two for two. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: Well, I wonder if the if the lobster has some kind of Jungian context, uh, maybe some Cambelian in there. <laughs> yeah, someone more intelligent than us can probably write a review uh, about that, that kind of stuff. <laughs> You know, this is uh, kind of,
2: it's related, but it's kind of a tangent. Um, My introduction to Waters, which I think is like, I I watched uh, the episode he's in The Simpsons. That was my introduction to uh, John Waters. And it's, uh, are either of you guys familiar with The Simpsons? Like, do you watch it
0: or anything? I haven't seen The Simpsons in about 10 years, easily.
2: Well, that whole episode was kind of a big deal because it was about, dealing with homophobia and stuff like that. But there was always just this innocence with his portrayal with, uh, Mm -hmm. as his character, John. And I think when I finally started getting into his films, probably about five or six years ago, I think that really like put me in the right mood to, to like his stuff. I feel like if I had started with this and this was the first thing I ever watched and I had no introduction to how he is as a person or uh, his sense of humor, I think it would, I would just probably hated it, but Or I wouldn't have taken to it as well as I did.
1: Are you talking about the one where he opens up a nostalgia store?
2: Yeah. And, um, you know, Homer, my my favorite joke in that whole thing is where, like, Homer wants to teach Bart not to be gay. So he, like, takes him to a steel mill. And they're closing up for the day. And they pull this thing and this music starts to play. And Homer's like, what's going on? He's like, we work hard. We play hard. And it turns (laughs) into, like, this, basically, this, um, nightclub and Bart's like dad why did you bring me to a gay steel mill and he's like I don't know
0: is that the episode where he like sits Bart in front of like a billboard? Yeah. yep um, that's the yeah, one I, I remember though I remember the episode now
2: so
1: here we go sorry I found the I found the quote so the question is where did the idea of the lobster come from <laughs> fair question um and then John Waters says well in Provincetown this summer someone said that acid must have been pretty good in the 70s and it's a fair comment because I wrote the lobster scene in Provincetown and there is a very popular postcard of a giant boiled lobster in the sky over the beach. And while tripping, I did think of that for the rape scene.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, so there's there, John Waters. There we go. Straight from the horse's mouth on that one. John Waters <laughs> did drugs and thought it was funny. <laughs> there's no, there's no and, subtext here. There's no nothing Jungian or Campbellian or Brechtian about this. It's disappointment. He did some drugs. George Miller should have done this
2: movie.
1: <laughs> we'll do the remake and it'll be the best movie ever made.
0: <laughs> now, I don't mean to get too highbrow on you guys, but um my 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 only introduction to John uh, Waters before this is in the first 5 seconds of The Creep by Lonely Island. So, there you go. He literally just comes on to start of the song and says, "My name's John Waters and this is The Creep." <laughs> That's it. Have you
2: seen a uh, pink flamingo by any chance? No, but I know I know of the scene well, I know
0: about the scene.
2: Well, the thing that I think the last thing he has in his filmography, and I haven't seen it, and apparently not many people have, but he got kids to reenact the script of Pink Flamingos, and I think that's hilarious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. Well, literally, the only thing I know about fl- fl- yeah, Pink Flamingos is that Divine literally eats shit. So yeah. that's literally the only thing I know about that film, and that's all I need to know about that film to know I'm not going to watch that film. <laughs>
2: If, if you want something a little bit easier, maybe go with Serial Mom. Like, if you want to kind of get his sense of humor a little bit better, but not have to make yourself go through a bunch of terrible stuff.
0: I was really surprised that he had made the original hairspray. Mm-hmm. Um, so that 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 and that divine played what I know as the John Travolta role because obviously I've only seen the remake. Um, so I just found I thought that was funny when I looked that up.
1: I love the sincerity that he talks about how beautiful her, um, divine is, Lady Divine is like all the characters are just like blown away by her beauty. <laughs> I was just <laughs> like, a
0: pound dude walking around in a wig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, it's just, it's just, but
1: like, I think in his way, like he's trying to be serious. Like, I don't know, he, I just, I love the way his mind works. Uh, it, it's so, it, I don't know. He goes that uh, one more, one more quote from this interview. I just thought it was funny, and then I'll, I'll have some original thoughts here. But he said. Um, he, he was asked about the privilege of being recognized by Janice and Criteria And he says, well, they released all the Igmar Bergman movies in Baltimore when I was growing up and Igmar Bergman, uh, Igmar Bergman, I know it might be hard to see, but he was a huge influence on me. He always had vomit and suicide and adult subject matter in his films. <laughs> <laughs> and then nothing. And then on to the next question. He just lets <laughs> like sit with that comment. Like, you know, he never like lets, lets in on the fact that he's joking. And I think there's something... It, I know Jackie used the word charming. I know it's weird to say, but I think it's I don't know there's something charming about his 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 work. I like it. It's it's like it's very kind of fun.
2: Well, oh, before I forget. So, uh we I was talking about when you, before we started recording about the Sharon Tate thing. Um that actually the ending of the movie was changed because of Sharon Tate. So, originally while this film was being made, they didn't know who had killed Sharon Tate at that point. They were still investigating. They were still trying to figure out if the other murders that happened soon after were related. Um, And while they were and then the end of the movie was supposed to be to link that Lady Divine was a part of the Manson family with no knowledge that she that that they had killed Sharon Tane at that point. And when they found that out, they actually got the newspaper that uh, that they have in the film. And apparently John Waters still has this. But they just had to change it, like, all of a sudden, like, oh, well, she was lying the whole time. They had nothing to do with tape murders because, I don't know, I guess, you know, getting raped by a 15-foot lobster isn't, like, a little insensitive and bad taste. But I guess actually being (laughs) the murderers of a case that was just solved, like, two weeks before might be a little bad.
0: That's interesting you say that because I don't know why I had it in my head that it's, like, completely two different eras. And when they were talking about, you know, oh, such and such killed Sharon Tate, I assumed they were talking about something that was like 10 years earlier. But now no, just it was like seven this. months. Yeah, I've just, re- no, it's just like you were saying, like, the end of 60s counterculture is just such a huge change in just, you know, in culture itself. And it just, it, it makes you realize sort of how close things were. And I, I, I've i just sort of cop this now to say, yeah, it's 1970. So yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's kind of funny um, that they, that they were talking about this stuff in the, in the middle of this film.
1: Yeah. The other, you know, the, 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 the lobster obviously is the most memorable rape scene in the movie. But right before that, there's another one, right. Where divine's walking around trying to get revenge.
0: And then yeah, it was and in the, in the, the middle thing. of the film. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and the, even, you know, John Waters in his, in his own kind of funny way, like he, he doesn't ever like nothing ever happens without like a little twist on it. And so like the people that, assault uh, Lady Divine one of them is a, a seems like a man wearing a dress with a beard <laughs> and and then there's the other woman that kind of holds her down but there, like there's like these even like everything that happens there's like always this little twist of kind of humor thrown in and throughout the whole movie I just yeah anyways.
2: I just want to note that somebody let their kid play in a John Waters like this movie in 1970, and let him dress him up like a king and everything. It's like, yeah, this is fine. I don't know who that kid is, but maybe it's somebody's. I would have to hope it's like one of the actors. I hope kids. so. Or either that or some parent was like, how much are you paying for me to let my kid be in this movie? Yeah. The
1: kid itself doesn't do anything controversial, right?
2: no oh, it's, it's just uh it's just it's right before the rosary scene yeah
1: <laughs> oh yeah no i'm sure when the parents saw the movie they're like the
2: hell <laughs> <laughs> i thought this
0: was a nice christian documentary
2: about you yeah. know jesus <laughs> we filmed jesus earlier so this will all be fine
1: <laughs> yeah uh hey welcome back to collection corner everyone thank you for uh listening to that water segment with us. And I hope it was enlightening and, uh, and humorous for y'all. We the, the theme for me this week in Collection Corner is going to be uh, going full on Fuller. So uh, I saw um, uh, The Naked Kiss last month. And I said, yep, that's a director I'm going to love. No doubt. Uh, the, the way the story was told, the way the, the cinematography, Stanley Cortez's cinematography just just knocked me out. It was amazing, uh, and so the way that my brain works is to say, well, let's go back to the beginning and see what Sam Fuller did kind of early on, and I realized that with a lot of the box sets that are out, it wouldn't actually be impossible just to go complete on him. I mean, it might get a little expensive, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be impossible. His, most of his films are released, so uh, that's what I've been doing the last month in, in the background. Uh, And I'm excited to talk about now with the Criterion sale that just happened, the Flash sale that just happened, and with some kind folks on eBay who did uh, the purchasing of of certain box sets early on and were willing to to hand them over to me for a price. I've now got the um, Indicator set, which is uh, uh, Sam Fuller, Columbia, Right. Um, which was not that bad, actually, price-wise. I think I feel like if that is out of print or, or if the limited edition is is over, it's recent enough to where the prices aren't terrible yet. Um, then I also found the Eureka set, the Fuller at Fox. Um,
0: Say. So must have pre- paid a pretty price for that one. That one's definitely out of print.
1: That one's been out of print for a minute. Yeah. Uh, and so I made the decision. There was one that was just over a hundred dollars and i it was like 110 or something like that and i went on and i looked for the other ones were all closer to like 180 190 or something like that so i felt like i may have potentially been taking uh you know advantage of somebody who was in a hard time financially if they're willing to part with it for so cheap so i did some some uh, ethical checks on on if, if i should offer them more uh, uh, but ultimately, I decided I don't want to start controlling their, their, you know, if they're willing to sell it for that price, I'm definitely willing to buy it for that price. So I just let it go and got that. And then uh just so happened that right after that, the Criterion flash sale happened. And so um, I should have, when I get back, the first three Fuller films are in uh, uh, Eclipse uh, box set from Criterion. And then I already had Shock Corridor and... White Dog. And so the only one I had to get was uh, Pick Up on South Street, which I later found out was in the Eureka set. So damn it on that. <laughs> but anyways, I have two different versions to watch. And then there's a Warner Archive sale coming up in mid-March. And uh, and the and the Warner uh, Archive line has basically the rest. Um, so so I'll be able to be completed by Unfuller by March. The only exception is something that's super interesting. So I don't know if either of y'all have been collecting uh, long enough to know much about DVD labels, uh, boutique labels, but do y'all remember a label called Phantoma from back in the day?
2: That's a no from me. Um, Zach, they would have
1: been right up your alley. They had some good some good um, kind of genre and horror stuff. But anyways, they they did not transfer to Blu-ray. And they're the only ones that put out a, this film uh, so far did not make it to Blu-ray, which is... Um, I'll forget the name of the film here, forgive me, but it's... Um, the, the, the movie that Fuller wrote and, and set out to direct was set in Central or South America and it never got made. And so what. Um, oh, man, sorry. My brain is all over the place here. Uh, the, um, uh, 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 anyways, one of these directors that ran in the same circles is like John Leary. And. Um, sorry, this segment is not very interesting if I just keep searching for this dude's name. Anyways, this one really cool kind of hip director got together with Sam Fuller and they actually revisited the site where the film was going to go be be made and had a documentary about making that film finally. And so I was able to track that down from Fantoma. So that was the final thing that came out for him. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, in the span of of a month here now with some different sales and whatnot, I've gotten pretty much complete on Fuller, which I'm excited about. What about y'all?
2: um mine is not received here it's still uh up in california but uh probably my big purchase and a price i'm not going to talk about but i'm pretty excited for it is uh in germany they put out this really nice edition of the 2018 mandy and because of my undying love for nicholas cage i just have to prove it to him at some point even if he'll never realize it friend um of the podcast. do i friend of the podcast oh absolutely absolutely nicholas cage um, but this set, it comes in like this uh, fake leather, fake leathery thing. And it actually includes like, have either of y'all seen the movie?
0: I haven't actually been meaning to watch it, but I haven't.
2: Well, the, in, in the movie, it has a cult leader named Jeremiah Sands. And he's supposed to basically, funny enough, be based off of Charles Manson. Um, so he has like the failed music career and everything. And they actually include the vinyl record of what his of what his music was supposed to be. Um, which is really exciting. It has a bunch of nice art cards, uh, probably this booklet that I'm not going to be able to read because I don't know German. And um, But it has a, has a CD soundtrack, uh, just really nice set, looks really high quality, and I'm hoping to get that within the next week if the guy from eBay ever
0: sends it off. <laughs> it had, does it have... Johan um, Johansson did the score for Andy? I think.
2: That's correct. It was his final yeah. movie
0: oh yeah cool so it has it has his score in there as well does it
2: it does, and it's a, it, it to me it's probably my favorite of his between that and arrival, but it's really good cool yeah he's, he
0: was a he was a really talented guy um for me uh i got a i think I arrived just about a week or so ago. Um, All the way back in episode one, I say all the way back, that was like six episodes ago, but <laughs> all the way back in episode one, I talked about a, an indicator box set that I was getting called uh, Columbia Noir number one. And this week I'm gonna be talking about Columbia Noir number two, which just came out this month uh, from Indicator. It's another gorgeous looking hard card set. Um, Not one of those sort of flimsy digipacks that certain companies beginning with C tend to put out um it's a collection of uh six sort of film noirs that would be like a lot of them be like b movies ones you wouldn't have never really heard of but like just deserve some love um this one has yeah six films it's uh, there's framed 711 ocean drive the mob affair in trinidad which is a rita hayward vehicle um Tight Spot and Murder by Contract, which I've only seen Murder by Contract out of the set so far. And Murder by Contract is just so it's just so good. It's like uh it's it's like a French New Wave film before the French New Wave existed. It's just super cool and easygoing and the main character is just yeah, he's just this really like aloof contract killer and he just goes around wearing a suit and wearing shades and you know the gangsters he's working for are wondering where he's going to put the hit out. But he's like, "Man, I need to go do some fishing first while I figure it out." He's just, this, uh, he's just this really, he's just this really funny dude, and it's a really funny, cool film. Uh, so, Mur- Murder by Contract definitely recommend. Um There's a couple of Glenn Ford films in here. Glenn Ford is obviously a big noir guy, Um and the the one with Tight Spot is a Ginger Rogers vehicle, which also features Edward G. Robinson, who's probably. Like one of the sort of biggest noir actors, uh, he did a lot of work with um with Fritz Lang and obviously Double Indemnity as well. He's kind of like the uh, kind of like the antagonist in Double Indemnity, but he's really the only good character. But uh, in terms of like the plot, he's kind of like the antagonist in Double Indemnity. So yeah, it's a really gorgeous box set. It's in this cool pulpy orange color. It's some really nice artwork. Uh, yeah, Indicator Columbia Noir Number Two, and. Columbia noir number three will be out sometime in may I can't remember the exact date but i'll be definitely picking that one up as well when it comes out have they so. revealed what's going to be in three they have they have um and once again like one and two i've never heard of any of the films <laughs> but i'm sure <laughs> they're great
1: just while you're looking those up adam do you do you by chance know i don't know why you know this off the top of your head but are these mm-hmm. releases in region a uh, yeah. at all or are these ones that are kind of exclusive to blu-ray
0: they are I think indicator in general are just region B. Um they're just like region B as far as um, I'm aware.
2: Now they um now I don't know if all of their stuff is like this. I know my vampires and ghosts from Mars, uh from them is A B C. Huh. Uh it has it on their disc. I don't know if yours will or not, but Well this um, is B. This says this B. This is just specifically um, B. B.
0: Yeah, this just has B on the back. So this says definitely just B. Um Columbia Noir number three. Oh, not only have I heard of one of these films, I've seen it. I forgot oh, all about it. Um, so you have Johnny O'Clock, never heard of it. Convicted, never heard of it. Between Midnight and Dawn, never heard of it. The Sniper, never heard of it. City of Fear, I feel like I've heard of it, but I can't say for sure. And then The Dark Past, which I've not only heard of, but I've seen because it was part of... It was part of the Colombian Noir Criterion Channel um, thing that they had out last summer. They had like a collection of Columbia Noir films and The Dark Past was in it. And I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm pretty sure The Dark Past is still on the channel. Um, I'm going to look it up now because it's actually a really, it's a really cool little film. I think it's only like 75 minutes long. Um, let me just get The Criterion Channel up here now and just do a search. The Dark past it's not it's not um but yeah I'm I'm surprised that I have not only heard of one of these films but I've seen it but yeah I'm a big noir guy I just kinda like like even like the bad ones I still kinda like them even even when they're bad. They're kind of like my my horror film to you Zach or or like your sort of weird cheesy Italian films to you Chris. It's just I know they're bad. Yeah I know they're bad but I like them.
1: So the, that sounds amazing. If I can redeem myself real quick, let me tell a more uh, more uh, uh, succinct story around the last film from Sam Fuller, because I got it up now here. And it's actually, I think it's an interesting documentary I really want to see. Jim Jarmusch, couldn't think of the name, and Sam Fuller take a trip to Brazil, area named Mato Grosso, up the river Araguaia, where... Fuller had been sent to scout a location and write a script for a movie based on a local uh, kind of famous jaguar hunter named Tigrero. And so he takes Jim Jarmusch now, 40 years later, and just walks him through this really remote kind of scary area of Brazil and they tell stories together. Which, that, I'll watch that movie all day long. I'll watch six hours of that movie because Jim Jarmusch is such an interesting guy anyways. Um, him, and, him and Sam Fuller just talking for 90 minutes, I'll, I'll watch that all day long.
0: Yeah that sounds really good. I I like I haven't seen enough Jim Jarmusch films but I I've liked what I've seen. Um and he seems like a really a really cool a really cool interesting dude. So yeah that sounds that sounds really good. I am I big Sam Fuller guy as well. Um I have the the, the Fuller at Columbia set from Indicator 2. It's a really really nice looking set. Um I own The Naked Kiss. I don't own Shock Corridor but I've seen Shock Corridor. Have you seen Shock Corridor? Because Stanley Cortez does the cinematography for that as well.
1: It's literally up next on my uh, on my thing to watch. I'll probably watch it tomorrow. Um, yeah, it's,
0: it's really really good. Um it's, it's it's just like a completely different kind of film. It's and it has a yeah, has some really cool sequences in it. Um like you wouldn't think there's a lot you can do, you know, from a cinematography point of view when your main character is at a mental hospital for 99% of the film. But yeah, the film just looks great. Um yeah, that 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 fuller documentary definitely sounds cool.
2: All right. Now that we've had our John Waters fill for the day, let's move into the 1958 film The Blob. This is about three determined women, Divine, Cookie, and Steve McQueen, who set out to solve the Sharon Tate murders.
0: <laughs> 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 oh, that's brilliant.
2: Um, A mysterious creature from another planet resembling a giant blob of jelly lands on Earth. The people of a nearby small town refuse to listen to some teenagers by the 28-year-old Steve McQueen who have witnessed the blob's destructive power. In the meantime, the blob just keeps getting bigger and bigger.
0: Do you mean Stephen McQueen? Because that's how he's in this film. Oh, is it? I didn't even. Yeah. this. yeah. He's, he's built as he's built as Steven McQueen, which oh, Steven McQueen. My mistake. It Doesn't have the same ring to it as Steven McQueen. I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, this this film is, is is crap, but it's fun, isn't it? That's that's kind of the only way I can kind of put this film. It's it's not very good, but it's it's fun and it's it's a different kind of fun and charming that Multiple Maniacs is because mm. it's just it's cheesy. And it's kind of cheesy that I don't know if if they I got this feeling that they were trying to take themselves seriously with this film. I don't think this was made, you know, tongue in cheek in mind. I think that they tried to make like a serious sci-fi movie and it just came off as really fun. And I think it's kind of endeared itself to people. And that's why obviously people still watch it now. And um, obviously compared to like I'm sure the dozens of other sort of creature features that would have came out in this era. Um yeah, I I I liked it. Um it's the kind of film I'd probably would throw on again on like a Sunday afternoon if I just wanted something easy just to throw on. Um but yeah, it's 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 not in any way. It's it's not like a it's not high art or anything like that. So uh, uh what do what do you think? Um yeah, we'll go we'll go with you, Zach, because you're you're our resident horror movie buff, so I wanna know what you think of it.
2: Um the blob is, you know, it it fits right into that nineteen fifty stuff and there is that charm throughout that whole decade and honestly when you look at that era it is both aged really well and really poorly like it it has a very different feeling than that they were going for originally but it's left a really charming um aesthetic um i think the colors of the film are actually really good um i don't know what it looked like before criterion got a hold of it but i think it's a beautiful looking film um some of the effects obviously haven't aged the best but for their small budget and time and everything, they still hold up decently. Well, um, I I still think it's a downgrade from, you know, the uh, 1950s version of the fly and the thing from another world, um, which would both also just like the blob get remade in the 1980s. But those two still held up on their own a a little bit better than the original blob did, but it's fun. It's, 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 it's a good time. It's not going to be something that's, it's not offensive. It's, just there, and it's it's good. I like it.
0: You say that the thing from, the thing from another world, thing from another, yeah, thing from another world, or thing from outer space. What's it called again? Thing from another world, isn't it? The thing from another world. Yeah, you say that that's better. But does the thing from another world have a jingle? I don't think it does.
2: It does not, and that it, that does lower it a
0: little bit. <laughs> yeah, for those who haven't seen the blob, it opens with a, a literal song about the about the blob from Bert Bacharach who, um. What was this oh he did raindrops, didn't he? raindrops are falling on my head mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. A, that he's that kind of easy listening kind of guy, and he sings a song about the blob. so yeah thats if there wasn't a reason to watch it, that's the reason now
1: I feel like the y'all were I, you know when we talked about uh um uh hulot's holiday, uh y'all were kind of like, yeah, it was fine i I don't really kind of you know not that memorable. it was fine. Uh, it was good, um, and that's kind of how I felt watching the blob again. I, I'd seen it about uh, I don't know two or three years ago, uh, so watching it again, I kind of felt like I don't have too much to say about it. In fact, we in our film discussion that we do on you know Friday on the on the Criterion subreddit, I was trying to think of something to say, and the only thing I could think of was connecting it to. Uh, becoming the inspiration for Vanilla's Vanilla Isis song "Ice Ice Baby," and I was laughing because the way that his lyrics line up, it actually works really well because it talks about something grabbing a hold of him tightly. Uh, and, uh, anyways, <clears throat> I don't really think that's what the song is about, but it worked well for that for the writing. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I don't think, like, I, I don't have too much to say, so, so I won't say it uh, uh, for long. <laughs> What's that? If, if you don't have too much to say, the worst thing you could do is keep talking about how much, how little you have to say. Um, I just thought it was a fun, sweet, kind of, you know, innocent uh, horror movie. And th- th- the only thing, Adam, you said that if they were in on the joke or not, there's one scene in the movie theater where they're watching a horror movie and they're kind of laughing at this monster movie. It made me wonder if right, it's right before the blob attacks the movie theater and kind of comes in through like the projection windows and at the back and kind of, you know, takes over. And it made me feel like maybe they were in on the joke a little bit between that and the theme song, you know, maybe they were kind of at least aware that this was going to be a light, you know, popcorn kind of affair.
0: Yeah. Someone mentioned it in the discussion thread about wondering like what audiences have been scared at, you know, at this kind of film and those in, you know, in 1958 when it came out and I think that scene in the in the theater sort of shows how audiences would have reacted to this film as well. You know, those days horror films were kind of more like carnival rides, you know, but not like the sk- not like a roller coaster, or more like you know just like a fun little carnival ride that you're gonna just have fun watching. And whereas obviously now they're made to make you feel terrible about yourselves or really <laughs> depressed or or make you very squeamish. But in those days they were just a, it was like a theme park ride. And I think the film in the theater sort of portrays how I think, anyway, audiences would have reacted when when this film came out as well.
2: Well, there is a um, there's a documentary. Uh, I think it's I can't remember exactly which one it is, but it's like Red, White, and Blood or something. But it's a uh, it's essentially the whole documentary discusses how horror changes, and it's very linked to the economy, um, like the 1980s and 1990s um, when the U.S. economy was doing much better than it is right now. Um, Horror movies were a lot more fun. They were a lot more, um, there was a focus on that. And I think the 1950s, you know, being right after World War II, I think that would have a lot to do with it as well. Um, I think people were looking for fun. They weren't looking to be scared or there was nothing at the time that they felt like, oh, well, we need to, this needs to be discussed like it was in the 60s and 70s and the 2000s where it's a little bit more violent.
0: Mm-hmm. no i agree um i'm just trying to look this up because i don't want to make a fool of myself but why do i okay i don't know why i thought night of the hunter was the same year as this film and what a, what a great contrast of films that would have been i suppose there's only, <laughs> there's, only, there's only three years of a difference between them and when you talk about what you're saying there zach about is wanting something fun and light to be able to enjoy the night of the hunter is kind of like the antithesis of this film oh yeah, in absolutely the, in, the, in that sense so i'm yeah This is is three years after, but still.
1: I would even back up the point of why audiences didn't really go with Night of the Hunter to begin with, right? Maybe this movie came out and they were like, whoa, 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 we want the blob. What is this?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. They just want something. They just want something. It's just fun. I feel like this film is kind of of like um, a few weeks ago when we were talking about uh, the lady killers. Um, There's no real in-depth discussion here about the, the themes. Although, I suppose, and, you know, i think this is kind of the most overt sort of um red scare movie really mm-hmm. it's literally it it comes from the sky it is red it assimilates people it's it's as overt a red scare allegory as as, as you could possibly get with a film without the blob literally starting to speak russian so um <laughs> uh, the sort of fear of communism and everything like that which is obviously running really high in you know at this time in the in the 50s after world war 2 um yeah, it's definitely the kind of film. Someone someone else in the discussion thread brought up how it's kind of different from the H bomb scare films, you mm-hmm. know, like them or Godzilla, you know, the ones where it was more about radioactivity that you were scared of. You were scared of like nuclear bombs and stuff. I think this one is definitely more uh you know, scared of communism, scared of, you know, something's gonna come into your town that's going to assimilate you into this into this blob, you know and essentially communism is about, you know, the idea of communism is about everyone being sort of together um, and the blob kind of represents that in that aspect.
1: That would explain too, if you're going to, if, you know, this is an allegory for communism, it would explain how the community was even kind of designed because they were really well, like uh, they're, they're very friendly with each other. They're very supportive of each other. They're very strong together. And so that would serve as a nice counterpart to The Blob, which was coming in and it was so kind of pernicious and like, you know, and it grew so, so fast Um, is, is this counterpart there of the town. Um, And in a weird way, this, this film would also kind of grow beyond time. So like every, every new generation in theory could have either a political, you know, ideology or, or something, you know, we could look at coronavirus in 2020, 2021. I mean, there's, there's something going on in the the macro environment that could probably serve as a proxy for the blob if you wanted to, to look at it that way.
0: Yeah, you could remake it any old time and you can say X. So like if it was in the 70s, it'd be, you know, gay panic. If it was in the 80s, it'd be AIDS. You know, obviously, if it was made now, it'd be coronavirus. So, yeah, it is kind of one of those sort of blanket allegories. Like for me, it's very overt, obviously for, you know, it's obviously it's made during the you know, during those sort of Cold War tensions. And for me, it's overt because it's red. I don't know if I'm just misreading that. The fact that the blob is red is just, that's what makes it super overt for me anyway.
1: No, I think it's definitely about that.
0: One thing I thought was, uh,
2: and this, I guess this probably shows how little there really is a lot to say about the blob besides like, it's fun. But uh, one of the first things I noticed when I watched it was it was produced by, uh, I think his name is Jack H. Harris. I'm going to double check because I just pulled it up to be double short. Yeah, Jack H. Harris um who you know where i've been on my carpenter run he was uh the one who really jump-started john carpenter and dan o'bannon's careers with dark star he was the one that convinced them to take like their student film and uh turn it into a feature film and then he would actually go on to produce the eyes of laura mars which was originally a screenplay by john carpenter so it, it was interesting to see that because that was really the highlight of his career But to see that, and then, and actually, apparently, he did a sequel to that. He was the director of the sequel, because that's a thing. Let me see if I can find it again. Because it was like the only thing he... No, he did Unkissed Bride. But he produced, and I'm making this job really fun for Adam when he has to edit. (laughs) Beware the Blob. There we go. Uh, Which I have not seen. I don't know if it's any good, but apparently it's a sequel.
0: I, I like Beware the Blob. I've never seen Beware the Blob, but I like it because I'm just reading here now. The tagline for Beware the Blob when it was released on home video was the movie that shot, sorry, the movie that J.R. shot. Um, <laughs> that's the tagline for Beware the Blob, so I like it because of that. I, I have no idea if it's any good. I assume it's not good. I don't know if you You, didn't, you said you were going to try see it, Chris. Did you, did you get around to it?
1: No, I, unfortunately not. Um, but, I, you know, I, I was hoping there's a, a few sequels that are better than the original, and I was hoping that Beware the Blob would be one of them. So I'll let you all know if I do see it, although my hopes are not high.
0: <laughs> I'm just wondering how it starts, because obviously, I don't The know Arctic asked... melted. <laughs> no, actually, apparently, an oil pipeline layer was in the North Pole and then returned home to suburban Los Angeles and brought the blob with him. So there we go. That's That's. That's how be where the blob starts. That's how the blob returns.
1: That's a very Godzilla kind of plot. You know, every all these Godzilla movies are about like people messing up the environment and causing Godzilla to come wreak havoc and that's a very uh it's a very Godzilla plot.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, that is sort of environmentalism is very sort of prevalent in, in like monster movies, um and in a lot of horror movies as well. Obviously the most genius one is the happening by M. Night Shyamalan. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, where it's what? The trees. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> does, am I misremembering that film? Or does Mark Wahlberg like, literally say, oh, it's the trees or something like that? Or Pretty it, like... much. <laughs> okay. I, remember, I know, obviously, I, like, I did. I, I, I'm, I'm not um, enamoring myself to cinephiles that listen to us, but I, I did see The Happening. I, I have seen that movie, but it was so long ago. and Obviously, I know the famous gif where he like has that sort of puzzled look. As, as, like the, as as the sort of tree as the, as the wind moves through the trees and he puts two and two together. But I didn't know if he if he literally said it's the trees. Well, no matter what, the one thing I will give the Happening it is better than Fat Girl. <laughs> Ouch! Off, hot take. Hot take. <laughs> the Happening is better. You've heard it here first, folks. <laughs> what if
2: the
1: Happening is a sequel to
2: Fat Girl? It's yeah. one of those sequels you were just talking about that outdid its original. <laughs> <laughs> I, fr- I was going to tell y'all
1: I hadn't seen that happening, but then when you described it, it brought back some old memories. I think I saw that in the theater, and I remember <laughs> just sitting there in the chair being like, what the hell is happening right now?
0: <laughs> it's yeah, like... I think it came out in like 2008, around that time. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. who plays Mark Ruffalo? Why do I think Zoe Deschanel played Mark Ruffalo's wife? Yeah, she's there. Oh my god, okay. Wow, I remember more that about that film than I thought I did.
2: I literally I saw it when I it do. came
0: out. I literally saw it when it came out. Um and it's obviously terrible. Um I swear he made
2: the last airbender just to say, look, that's not my worst movie. <laughs> I made the last airbender.
0: <laughs> so on the blob, um Steven McQueen, who's twenty eight years old. I really want to look up the rest of the ages of the teenagers but like none of them have wikipedia pages um robert fields he's the only one of the, of the teenagers as they are as they are credited in the opening credits who played the teenager of tony who i yeah you you know yeah you know as much as i do um but he was he was only one year younger than steve mcqueen um, yeah
2: and then um his girl the girl who played his girlfriend she said she was born in 1933 on her on her IMDB so she was 25.
0: yeah so they're, <laughs> they're in no way shape or form teenagers and like to be fair she can probably get away with it she kind of looked young she could probably pass for 18 mm-hmm. um Steve McQueen could not pass for 18. That dude, I'm pretty that dude had gray on the side of his head. <laughs> he had gray hair. You know, he had gray hair and he had, you know, tension lines in his forehead. He, that dude could not pass for 18. I don't know whose decision that was. I it mean was he a... was just he was just held back a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that dude just could not do math. He <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: why nobody believed him. They're like, look, this guy did not find aliens.
0: There's no way he was held back
2: seven times.
0: It reminds me of it's like they're not taking him seriously because yeah, it reminds me of, isn't there like a film or where where Tara Reid plays like a scientist? I wouldn't um, doubt it, in
2: all honesty. Her career has made some uh And it just
0: reminds decisions. me of that. It's like who's gonna who like who's gonna believe that this person actually knows what they're talking about?
2: My
1: favorite one like that is Denise Richards playing a nuclear scientist in That's a bond movie
0: yes it's it wasn't it wasn't Tara <laughs> Reed, It was niece yeah yeah,
1: like it, that's immediately Isn't
0: her name like <laughs> Christmas Jones or something silly like that as well I'm pretty sure that's her name like Christmas Jones or something ridiculous
2: yeah exactly exactly yeah. It's, it's something Christmas for sure, <laughs> all I've learned is Adam has a really good memory, much better than mine <laughs>
0: yeah i i I can't even tell you what bond movie that's in. I just know it exists
1: it's a Pierce Brosnan one,
0: okay, so that means they're terrible, okay um. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Christmas Jones, you were right. That's awesome. (laughs) Christmas Jones, what what film was it? The World Is Not Enough.
0: Oh yes, okay. I've definitely seen that one, so that makes sense. It'd be weird if I knew it and hadn't seen it, but that happens a lot as well. I know more, I know a lot about films that I've never seen either. And that wraps nearly everything up. Uh, we have our our final segment, as always, uh, which is any other business where we just talk about something that we've seen recently that we you know want to talk about. Doesn't have to be criterion. Doesn't have to be good. Just you know something that we've seen that we'd like to me. we, we, we want to give a shout out to. Um, I'm going to start this week, guys. If that's okay. Um, I have been going on a Fritz Lang marathon, a Langathon, if you will, mm-hmm. um, where I'm trying to watch all of. His available films, some of his films that he did early in his career are considered lost, unfortunately. But I'm trying to make my way through all of his available films, whether by like buying them physically or, you know, if I can get them on streaming anywhere, I'm doing that too. And, you know, I got a batch order in this week of a, a few of his films. A couple of them came through um, Eureka, Masters of Cinema, who in Region B have the rights to like the majority of his of his films. And then there, there was one film that if i'm honest i hadn't even heard of um and it wasn't released by a major boutique label it's by this really small boutique in region b called single one media who just do really really obscure stuff it's not like super high quality like a criterion or even like a eureka release or anything like that but i was like pleasant pleasantly surprised um the, the film was called manhunt from 1941 um, and it was released by this guy, Signal One Media. And it's a, a really nice presentation. The the picture quality of the transfer is really, really good. It has even, you know, a few special features on it as well. So, you know, kudos to them for releasing this. And the film itself is really, really fun. It's very sort of Hitchcockian, um, sort of espionage thriller. Um, basically, it's uh, about this guy. He's like this um, British captain. And this is like just prior to world war Two, so britain hadn't yet like announced or declared war on germany but you know tensions were high and this guy is basically out hunting um he's like he's, he's like a, a world-renowned hunter and he's out hunting in like the german wilderness and he stumbles across hitler's big sort of compound and he basically gets hitler in his sights of his um of his rifle. And just before he's about to, to shoot him, he, he gets tackled by a guard and is brought in and just beaten and tortured and interrogated and everything like that. Um, and it basically follows him as he escapes the Germans and makes his way back to the Britain. But he ends up being sort of followed there by German agents. Um, and, you know, he has to shack up with the, with the working class British um yeah, just a work, normal working-class working, working class British girl played by Joan Bennett doing the most unconvincing British accent ever. It's very much like a, oh, blimey, governor kind of accent. It's just, it's so, like, like I love Joan Bennett. She's probably my favorite actress of the 40s. I love her in all Fritz Lang's films that, he, that she shows up in. I don't know whose idea it was to have her play someone British because her accent is awful. And even the main character was played by yeah. R- Walter Pidgeon, at least he doesn't even try and put on an accent. He literally sounds American the whole way through the film. <laughs> and and to, to add to that, the Nazi captain who basically took this guy in and did all the torturing and is in charge tracking him down is played by um, played by oh, what's his name? He's in um, George Sanders, who is in Rebecca uh, from Hitchcock and in foreign, foreign Correspondent from Hitchcock, and he's a very very British man playing a German uh, Nazi. Okay. So, if you take away the casting and the questionable casting aside, the film is really, really fun. It has like that typical sort of Lang cinematography and shot composition that makes everything just look really, really cool. Um, and it's sort of maybe expressionist in some viewpoints as well, but it has that Hitchcockian funness about it. You know, like a, like the Thirty Nine Steps or like Foreign Correspondent. Um, you know, it's just it's a really fun film to watch. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I was kind of blown away by it because I'd never heard of it up until I had gone investigating, um, you know, all of Long's films to put together a, you know, a, a sheet of where I'm going to put in all my thoughts. Uh, yeah, Manhunt, 1941 by Fritz Long. Really, really enjoyable film. Where you can get your hands on it, you know, on the disc or find it streaming somewhere. I would really, really recommend it.
1: I wonder if this is the first of that kind of narrative around you know prisoner of war or criminal escaping and finding themselves in the hands of a farm girl or a rural woman and cuz you remember when we saw you saw samurai 1 recently right the yeah. Miyamoto story has kind of a plot there as well and i feel like there's a few movies that have this kind of rough like we're escaping and we end up in a in an obscure farm and and then maybe potentially fall in love or at least at least learn a lot about ourselves
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's sort of like a it's a really like that kind of idea of an every man caught up in something and ending up on the run is shows up a lot, especially in espionage films. Like the 39 steps is like a really key example of that where, you know, he ends up accidentally meeting up with a spy who gives him information that he shouldn't know. And he ends up on the run and ends up somewhere rural. So it's, yeah, it's, it's something that happens a lot in espionage films. This was like the first of four, and it's going to sound really weird to say this phrase, but it's the only way I can describe it. It's the first of four anti-Nazi films, if that sounds... And I mean that in the historical context of when this film came out, because obviously, remember, the US was neutral. And this film was seen to be, was seen to be anti-Nazi and very pro-British and pro-going-to-war, mm. essentially. Um, So there was this, Ministry of Fear, Hangmen Also Die, and Cloak and Dagger, were like the four films that long made in like a sequence that all were considered, you know, anti-Nazi and trying to get the public sympathies towards saying we should be siding with the British and go to war against these guys. Um, there's a funny quote I was reading up on the Wikipedia page and there's a funny quote from one of the guys in the Hayes office um, called Joseph Breen, who was alarmed by it and called it a hate film. If you can imagine that. <laughs> The film about how bad Nazis are was called a hate film. Wow. <laughs> um, so that that's to put I mean, a bit more of a historical context at this time, obviously, in a neutral US. World War, World War II hadn't been declared. They hadn't invaded Poland, which, well, in the context of when the film is set, this is obviously 1941, you know, they had invaded Poland at this time, and that's how the film ends with the invasion of Poland. Um, but yeah, the whole sort of idea of this film was to maybe sway public sympathy towards you know going going to war against the nazis
2: yeah i guess for the u.s the earliest that i know of and probably the most well-known example would be the great dictator charlie Chaplin's. yeah and that was 1940 um and that was looked down pretty negatively i believe at the time
0: but it's kind of interesting that a lot of the guys who did make these kind of films were the ones who would end up almost getting blacklisted or have their have their sort of um alliances questioned sort of after the war, it's so obviously like Fritz Long is obvious, you know, he fled Germany to get away from the Nazis so it's obvious he would make one, obviously Charlie Chaplin you know, I believe he was blacklisted at some point, if I remember correctly, if my film history knowledge is up to scratch so it's kind of interesting the guys who would end up making these anti-fascism films and how these anti-fascist messages would be the ones that would then get blacklisted about 10-20 years later for apparently being pro-communist. So you can never really, you never really seem to win with the U.S. government.
1: <laughs> that's probably the best. That's the tagline for the podcast. But anyways.
0: So what did you see, Chris? What did you like?
1: Yeah, just, just to finish that thought, my favorite anti-Nazi film from that era has always been uh, Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be. Have any of y'all seen that?
0: No, mm-hmm. I actually haven't.
1: Oh, it's brilliant. They, they just, it's, a, it's a good comedy that really pokes fun at like the incompetence of, of the, the, the military units and stuff. Um, anyways it's brilliant and the fact that it was made you know production was in 1941 and then released in 42 uh is is pretty um it's always been a a big fan of that movie but i'll have to check out manhunt because i I, i'm just impressed with the bravery that goes into that um to be able to do that especially from a european but yeah um, so i'll keep my section is going to be short uh i started a new job i think i told you all so this week has been the, the least amount of films i've probably seen in like two years but there's one that really stood out um there's a arrow video has released two volumes of something they call Nikatsu Diamond guys and it's essentially these these Japanese movies that came out where they they got a trope uh, a troop of actors together and it's sort of like a boy band honestly like it's a very similar process. They found a bunch of young handsome men uh, in in their view you know the, these guys that were gonna be kind of uh, celebrities and um, and went through this whole process of trying out like ten thousand young men and, and they found out their their faces of their franchise and they made a bunch of sort of crimey noir sort of films uh and one of the big names i don't know if y'all are familiar with this guy named joe Shishido. um he came out of that you, yeah Adam, then, Shake, yeah had,
0: from uh branded to kill
1: yeah exactly he's kind of famous for his his uh distinguishing chin and 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 cheeks puppy cheeks
0: yeah um, cheek enhancement surgery that he got
1: yeah that's not a yeah. joke
0: he genuinely got cheek enhancement surgery.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and uh, there, there's this great guy. You know, Zach, you might be familiar with this horror guy named Robert Zadar. Do you know him?
2: Yeah, I know him.
1: The, the distinguishing chin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Joe Shishido's cheeks are almost that comically big at times. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but um, these big old cute puffy cheeks. But anyway, so he. this is an early film before the cheek enhancement surgery. But uh, he's recognizable still. And and it's really it's, – it's noteworthy, I think, just for two reasons. So it's a Seijun Suzuki film. So – it's, it's fun to watch early Suzuki. Uh, and just like, uh, you know, I, the, the director that I've done a, a run on recently is Kurosawa, and I, could, I think there's a similar here uh, coincidence that they're both Japanese. Their styles really couldn't be more different. But, you, you, you know, Kurosawa had some particular kind of storytelling techniques that were on display in his early movies, but, like, it, you could tell it wasn't really fully his project yet. And it, once he really got going is when it became, like, a Kurosawa film. And then Suzuki is similar is more visually kind of striking and he plays with like cinematography and angling and and making you feel like you're tripping out sometimes just by what he does with the camera and there was two moments that really stood out in uh oh the movie's called voice without a shadow sorry so it's the first film in this Nikatsu Diamond Guy set so voice without a shadow uh, early Suzuki and there's two scenes that really stand out one is there's the character's head that stands still and the background is twisting So they must have somehow secured the camera to the body because the head is like completely still the whole time. So that's pretty cool. It's a pretty trippy effect. And then the other one is they play a lot with broken mirrors and like very selectively placed sort of panes of glass in a broken mirror um, that displays a lot of the confusion and kind of trauma that's going on inside the person's uh, mind at that time. So anyways, it's, yeah, it's early, you know, the film itself, I'd say if it didn't have those visual elements and you didn't know it was a Suzuki film, probably a pass probably not something you'd have to see it's a relatively straightforward plot um i wouldn't say it adds much to the genre but it does have really good beautiful kind of striking contrast black and white uh filming and uh and it's got just enough suzuki i think to make it worth watching so
2: that's what i'll I'll push for the week what about you zach um probably the my favorite movie I watched during the week. Um, and I have more extended thoughts on the website, but probably, um, the standoff at Sparrow Creek, which was a 2018 film by first time director, Henry Dunham. Uh, essentially the movie follows, um, this guy who is part of a private militia group who obviously they're under, you know, they're in secret because they're not allowed to exist and they have tons of, um, automatic weapons, Kevlar vests, some IEDs. Um, one night on the radio, on the police scanner, they hear that a police officer's funeral has been shot up with uh, automatic weapons. So what they do is they all have to meet within 10 minutes to their meat spot, which is in a lumber yard, and just to make sure none of them were involved. And once they get there, they realize that one of their automatic um, ARs are missing along with several uh, kevlar vests so the whole movie kind of does this um kind of builds on this tension of one of these men who's involved in this militia have committed this crime and they're trying to figure out which one had done it so the whole militia group doesn't go down with them essentially they would want to give them up to the police and just wash their hands of the whole situation um so the main guy who is a former police officer is there to interrogate the people he believes it is uh, very good movie. Um, I really like it has uh, Adam, you might be somewhat interested in it. it has a very deep noir look while it's in color. um focuses a lot on shadows, a lot on harsh lighting. um and it's and it works really great because it's in such a mute location, like a lumber yard that really helps the film stand out. It really helps you stay engaged. It's great. It's a great looking film. um it's it's a brisk like eighty six to ninety minutes. It's a very quick film. But it it just keeps you hooked about the whole time. Um, It's almost it's I I guess in concept it's similar to Reservoir Dogs,
0: with a lot more bleakness. Yeah, (laughs) it reminds me kind of Reservoir Dogs. That sounds sounds pretty cool. Yeah,
2: so that's mine. Uh, I think it's available on Hulu. If anybody has that, I know Adam, you don't have that in your country, but um, it's good to watch. It's a good fun watch.
0: Yeah, sounds, sounds
1: good. I've been furiously searching in the background in hopes that it's the brother of Lena
2: Dunham. Uh, but it looks like they're not connected. So. <laughs> well, that gonna... is a little disappointing. <laughs> yeah.
0: Goddamn. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.